Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. This week on the agenda, Europe's energy crisis. Has the fallout from the conflict in Ukraine changed the continent's power landscape forever? The conflict in Ukraine has sparked an energy crisis the likes of which Europe has never seen before. The sanctions imposed on Putin's government expose the over-reliance on Russian supplies. Prices of oil and gas have skyrocketed in the past few months and much of Europe is facing a cold, dark winter. Many countries are now looking to Norway to fulfil their energy needs, although some have criticised the country for profiting from a Europe-wide problem. Joining me now is Norway's State Secretary at the Ministry for Petroleum and Energy, Andreas Bjelland Eriksson. Thanks ever so much uh, for, for coming on the programme. Now, Norway's become the EU's biggest supplier of gas since uh, the Russian cuts to its supply. How can you ensure that you're going to continue to deliver? First and foremost, let me say that we have done everything we can from the Norwegian side to increase production. Uh, production is up by approximately 8% in 2022 as compared to 2021. That constitutes around 100 terawatt hours of energy more delivered to Europe. And obviously we are v working very closely with the companies uh, producing, selling gas from the Norwegian continental shelf to be able to maintain the system at full capacity also going forward. Now, of course, Norway isn't a member of the EU, EU but as, as someone outside in looking in and a, a trading partner, do you think that the, the EU um, could have done more to stop being so reliant on one gas supplier, Russia? And if so, what more could they have done and how much quicker could they have done it? I think it's dangerous to sort of write the history in retrospect. Uh, I think it was difficult to see this coming. Uh, what is important now is that we ramp up investments in other sources of energy supply as fast as possible. We see that uh, the EU already has taken measures to increase uh, capacity of LNG into Europe going forward. We see that there are many new projects within renewable electricity generation uh, ramp being ramped up, uh, being ready to invest and produce uh, quite soon uh, to be able to sort of deliver that extra energy going forward is what is uh, important for Europe now. So you're saying it's important to look at alternative sources of energy, but in terms of what's on the market now, prices are an issue, aren't they? I mean, inflation is so high, I mean, perhaps Norway could lower the price of its gas, that might help. I think we have been very clear and we have a strong collaboration and a strong common interest with the EU Commission to work together to find measures that can stabilize the energy prices. At the same time, we have to be honest about the fact that there are no easy, quick fix tools. Uh, the underlying problem is a lack of energy in the system. That is why prices are high. We have voiced our concerns over, for example, a price cap on gas due to the fact that that could actually increase the current energy crisis, uh, make gas flows shift away from Europe, for example, increase uh, the demand for, for gas in the short run. Uh, but we are willing to work together with the Commission, with our neighbouring countries, to find solutions to be able to bring down prices going forward. But isn't one solution selling gas below market price for a while? 
Well, uh, directly, such a measure would constitute uh, the same uh, approach as uh, a price cap uh, on gas and therefore have sort of the same effects. So there are sort of no ready-made tools that we can apply in this crisis that would uh, uh, sufficiently uh, bring down energy prices in the short run. We have to work together to, to find those measures in practice to be able to ensure that they do not have detrimental effects on energy security in Europe uh, in this and the next winter. And that is what we're now looking into together with the European Commission. You said that there's no, no quick fixes, no nothing in the toolbox as it stands. So what would you like to see in terms of this cooperation and collaboration you're talking about to, to help stabilise energy prices? I wish I had sort of a ready-made answer for you and that I could lay it out in full detail. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I do not. And uh, I don't think, uh, as I mentioned, that, that those tools exist today. So what we now need to do in practice uh, is to work together to identify what possibilities we have uh, uh, in Europe uh, to, to find measures that both bring energy prices down, but at the same time ensures that we have sufficient energy security, uh, enough energy in the system uh, so that it sort of doesn't break down in the short run. And finding those measures will be absolutely crucial uh, going forward to handle and tackle this energy crisis. And part of the, the secure energy security question, of course, is the safety of your infrastructure. Um, how concerned are you about your infrastructure, especially considering um, the, the rumours of sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline? I think, uh, understandably, a lot of people are concerned due to what has happened uh, with Nord Stream 1 uh, and 2. Uh, and from our side, we have increasingly increased the security on the Norwegian continental shelf, uh, also before uh, those events. Uh, obviously, I cannot go sort of into details uh, as to what measures have been put in place, but we put a very strong emphasis on security uh, on the continental shelf. We know that the companies on the Norwegian continental shelf put a strong emphasis on, on security, and we are doing everything we can to maintain the system at uh, full speed going forward. Some have suggested that the energy crisis could lead to a deindustrialization of Europe. So heavy energy dependent industries will move to countries where the supply is cheaper and possibly more plentiful. I mean, is that something that you can see happening and if so, when? Higher prices and extraordinarily high prices obviously create uh, demand destruction effects. Uh, and uh, I think we can safely say that uh, uh, some of the types of demand that are closed down first are, for example, uh, large industry. So being able to put in place measures that ensure that we do not see a deindustrialization of Europe will be crucial to, to prevent that from happening in, in practice. Uh, in Norway, we do not use that much gas for end consumption, but we use a lot of electricity and we see that also happening to Norwegian businesses. Uh, and from our side, we have been very concerned about how measures can be put in place to ensure that they can uh, uh, continue to operate also going forward. 
We have heard lots of talk across European nations about reducing demand from consumers and from businesses. So getting countries to introduce measures to cut back on energy usage, heating limits for consumers and so on. Do you expect more countries to, to put in policies like that? That seems likely to me. Uh, obviously, the member states of the EU have agreed already to put in place measures to, to help save energy, to utilize the energy smarter uh, going forward, uh, because that is sort of uh, crucial in a time where there is a lack of energy in the system. And I think part of uh, uh, that going forward will be information campaigns, measures to help fund energy saving uh, in households, in businesses, etc. And, and we will probably see more of that in countries in uh, Europe going forward. Now you've said that the conflict in Ukraine has changed the energy landscape in Europe forever. What do you think the future of energy in Europe looks like then? I think uh, in the short term, the situation we're in right now is a great challenge and it's hitting very many people, businesses, countries hard and it's tough to tackle. But it's also a historic opportunity to be able to uh, invest in the green transition, to be able to transform the energy systems of the European countries into more renewable electricity production. And uh, I believe that uh, that will be the end game of what we're now experiencing. Andreas Bjelland Eriksson, thank you very much. Thank you. Still to come here on the agenda, factory closures and industrial shutdown. Is European manufacturing facing an energy disaster? Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. Norway's energy minister certainly thinks the current crisis is an opportunity to transform European energy production. But how might that happen? And is there a danger of de-industrialisation as manufacturers head for countries where gas is cheaper and more plentiful? Well, with me now to look more closely into Europe's energy future are Professor Karen Pittle, director of the IFO Centre for Energy, Climate and Resources, and Dr. Paul Dorfman, Associate Fellow of the Science Policy Research Unit for Sussex Energy Group at the University of Sussex. Thank you both for joining us. Welcome. Um, let, me, let me start with you, um, Dr. Dorfman, because the stream of Western sanctions sent the price of gas and other raw materials soaring. And Europe's historic overdependence on Russian energy has um, rather caught up with them, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, after all, the key issue behind all of behind all of this, other than, than than Russia's invasion, catastrophic invasion of Ukraine, is the climate crisis. And as we know, we have to move away. We have to transition away from fossil fuel, including gas. Happily, the EU, via Repower, is set to raise about 370 billion euros in private public finance to to, to fund the renewable ev evolution. 
last year, renewables met, uh, in fact, the first half of this year, renewables met all the rise in electricity demand in the first half of 2022. The, the, the rise was about 400 terawatts. Uh, the new renewables amounted to about 460 terawatts. That made up, so uh, that's saving about $40 billion uh, in costs. Uh, so behind all of this, we understand that we have some near-term problems. There's no question about it. We have to get through this winter. This winter will be cold. But the renewable evolution is on the horizon. Professor Pittle, arguably, could you say that, that all the things that Europe should have been doing to to substitute their Russian energy reliance, possibly for years now, or would be you know, seeking alternative um, energy markets, investing more heavily in renewable energy, all of these actions could arguably have been set in place before sanctions are, on Russia were imposed. Um, what options are there now? I mean, like you said, it one was a little bit complacent in the sense that mm. uh, this kind of mutual reliance was always uh, there and one was hoping that that would play out in our favor. But now we have the situation that we have to substitute shortly in a short term. I mean, expanding renewables is of course the long-term solution, but in the short term, the cold winter, next winter, coming winter, but also the winter after that is going to be a big problem. And so what we do at the moment or what we try to do is actually expand the supply on the one hand um, of natural gas, and that is done, for example, in Germany via new LNG terminals that expand the import capacity. Um, on the other hand, of course, um, what is sometimes not taken seriously enough, in my opinion, is really the um, reduction of demand, because that is crucial. There is abs there, there's basically absolute limits to what else we can get in the short term with uh, respect to natural gas. But of course, we can reduce our demand, and that can be do done through various channels, with households, through less heating, so a little bit colder winter, but also in industry, but fuel substitution, import substitution, simply reducing in certain industry the level of production. So there is various channels, also using less um, gas, less natural gas in power production. And uh, at least for calculations for Europe, I mean, there's the, um, the goal to reduce energy demand by, or gas demand by 15%. For Germany, it's estimated that it should be 20 to 25% to actually avoid um, running into a situation where we don't have any gas in storage anymore or running our storage really, really low. But all these conversations we're having about reducing our usage, trying to cha change demand, um, there's even talk about you know, blackouts um, in, in, in some countries. I mean, Dr. Dorfman, it, it seems like the energy sanctions are affecting Europe um, more than they're, they're hurting Russia. Um, would you say they're just not working? No, but the issue isn't simply gas. I mean, Russia and Russia-controlled Kazakhstan controls 42 percent of all uranium for nuclear reactors worldwide and 20% for Europe. EDF is still doing business with Russia. France imports 20% of all uranium from Kazakhstan, which is Russian Rosatom controlled. And, uh, you know, Russian nuclear exports are largely untouched by sanctions. Hungary building a nuclear plant with the aid of Russian loans. So the fact is, we're not simply talking about gas here. We're talking about power, we're talking about electricity, and we're talking about strategic geopolitics as well, too. So uh, I think we need to take all of this in, in, in hand when we're thinking about uh, what's going on. 
and Professor Pitlock, you know, all of Europe is suffering here through this energy crisis. But I'd like us to zone in on Germany, a country, after all, whose business model um, has been built on cheap energy from Russia and abundant demand from China. And both of those things are, are being tested right now. So how do you see it playing out? Maybe just come back to the previous question really shortly. Okay. I think it's sometimes not really seen that Russia is hurting, but I mean, inflation is way up. Even income of the of the government is way down, so they need to find new um, sources of income. And also, what I think is sometimes underestimated, it's not a short. These sanctions are not really short term; they are designed to hurt in the longer term. So many of the products that are forbidden to import to Russia or export to Russia um, are actually going to be missed once they have to be replaced, which is not necessarily in the very short term. But of course, we feel the lack of gas in the very short term. So there is a difference in timescales, and I think that is really important as well. Um, now, with respect to the question of um, how this is going to play out with respect to the lacking supply of Russia, I said a little bit, I mean, there are countries that are sometimes even eager to step up, not all of them, uh, with respect to providing more gas to Europe, but most of them actually want to have some security of investment. So they don't want to do it just for a couple of years, but if they explore new gas uh, reserves, then they'd like to have long-term contracts, which of course we don't want to have because we want to basically gradually, gradually fade out, uh, phase out as well uh, natural gas. Now, with respect to China, that is a really interesting question because um, China is the biggest trading partner for Germany. On the other hand, of course, also China relies very heavily on exports to Europe and to the US. And so if that were to break down, also China would be hurting very much. Paul, I can see you nodding along there. Is, is that a, a, an analysis that, that, that you agree with? I absolutely agree with everything that's been said. It's uh, we live in an independent world. And uh, so we rely on others for, for, for our capacity. But it, it, considering China and considering uh, China's own energy transition. Last year, China uh, renewables grew faster than any other energy source. The wind with the 40% increase, with solar with the 25% increase. So despite the fact that we are certainly uh, facing uh, not only one cold winter, but a series of cold winters, uh, and we have uh, a clear commitment to fossil fuels at the moment, we must, we need to transition away to the renewable evolution, which to a large extent, Germany in terms of its energy vendor is leading the way. The global strategy over Ukraine, as, as we've just been talking about, has been really aimed at weakening Russia's economy, but, but Germany ha has taken a particularly hard hit, potentially more than its counterparts. Um, you know, ArcelorMittal closing two steel plants there. Some economists predicting two to three percent of Germany's industrial companies that use energy intensive processes are going to relocate abroad. So how real is this threat of deindustrialization? I mean, it's definitely there. Um, that's for sure. I mean, basically, Germany has a higher share of um, industry production than many of its neighbors. So the de industrialization process that we might be facing has already taken place in other countries like France, for example. And what will happen will not only depend on this winter and the next, but really on the more longer term outlook. I mean, the short term that can be to some extent managed by relieving burden, helping like support from the uh, from the government 
either through loans, but also through direct help by keep, um, keeping employees. But the longer term outlook, how are gas prices are going to develop? What is the outlook on transitioning to clean fuels? Like, I mean, hydrogen is a kind of a pipe dream at the moment. I hope pipe dream is the right word here um, because it just will take to build up markets. It's not going to be there in three years. Uh, synthetic fuels. This is everything that in the long term, I think, will play out in favor for Europe because we are um, already investing heavily in these uh, in these capacities. But there is this number of years between this clean economy and where we are now that we kind of have to get through. And this is going to depend on the sometimes very specific situation of the different companies. I mean, some can pass on uh, pass on energy prices to their consumers. So in this case, you're relatively fine. Others can, for a short term, at least um, uh, replace some of their inputs by imports from somewhere else. Some can still invest in energy efficiency, although energy efficiency in the German industry is already very high. Um, it also depends on where are your customers. I mean, for some industries, it might actually be like they might have been thinking about moving to the US because most of the customers might be in the US for a while now. So it really depends on the specific industry that you're actually looking at. But the um, problem of expectations and in the middle term and the long term, I think that is the decisive factor here. Also the question, how can you protect Europe's industry via, for example, carbon border, adjust, carbon border adjustment? I mean, these are things that, of course, then also improve the competitiveness and uh, are is discussed with respect to climate policy anyway, but can also make some of a difference now. I'm pleased you brought up the United States, and this is a question I want to ask you, um, Paul, because it's been said that the only real winners in Europe's energy crisis are the United States, where gas supplies are, are relatively cheap, relatively plentiful. Uh, is that a fair assessment, do you think, of where we are now? Not necessarily. I mean, in terms of fossil fuels, one has to consider oil, and OPEC Plus recently has moved on this. Uh, and the, the Biden administration is not necessarily pleased about that, especially in the context of what that might imply in terms of potential alignment with, uh, let's say, Russian interest. So, no, America is not necessarily a, a winner in this. And of course, uh, a quarter of all new electricity generation in the US was renewables last year. So the point is, yes, we are in trouble now. Yes, what has happened has impacted on us all. And we are facing this problem, hopefully together. But the real issue and the real issue about both energy, electricity and climate is where we are going. And in this context, there's no question but that renewables will be doing the heavy lifting for the renewable transition. Karen, I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, which was about the, the US um, and Germany investing in, in LNG, because Germany is signing these long-term contracts uh, for US LNG, although, of course, it's going to have to find somewhere to store it all. I mean, where else could the US potentially step in? I mean, should they be pumping more oil to alleviate the energy crisis or... Um, by asking that question, are we missing the point, as Paul would suggest? Well, I mean, I see it a little bit differently um, than Paul, especially with respect to the next years, because um, natural gas, at least, is forecasted to be pretty expensive for a couple of years in Europe. And so there is definitely a competitiveness advantage um, with respect to the U.S. compared to, Germ to Germany and the EU. And 
even with respect to Asia, who, which had um, very high gas prices all along, kind of lost the competitive edge that we had there as well. Now, with respect to um, oil, I, mean, I think the OPEC might be a little bit disappointed because as a reaction to their announcement, there wasn't that much movement on the uh, on the global oil markets, which might be due at parts to the global recession, which is mostly anticipated by now. And also another point is that um, some of the OPEC members actually have trouble keeping up with the increase in production that uh, the OPEC was kind of the path that they were following over the last months because they didn't really invest uh, in new production capacities and in, in, in keeping up their already existing production capacities. So after Corona, there was always the struggle that they were not really gaining that much more with respect to selling more, but more they would get more through the prices. So that might actually play a role in what the OPEC did. But then also the question is, of course, following that, how much will oil production decline overall? Is that really going to make such a big difference, the announcement of OPEC? Coming up on a future agenda, running out of water, why the rains across Europe now may not be enough to prevent serious droughts next summer. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.